It's May 23rd, 2002, and the fans at Milwaukee's Miller Park boo as Sean Green steps to the plate. Green's an outfielder with the visiting Los Angeles Dodgers, and he's a star, or at least he's supposed to be. But he's been struggling. His batting average is down, and the fans have turned against him. The first pitch is a strike. Green is tall and fast and has a sweet left-handed stroke. He's always hit for average, aiming for singles and doubles. But his coaches want him to swing for the fences to hit more home runs. Green's not on board, and he fights back. He knows what makes him good, and that's not it. The second pitch is a strike. Green's battles with the coaching staff have taken an emotional toll. Baseball was always fun. Now it isn't. His dark mood just compounds his problems at the plate. Hitting a baseball coming at you at 95 miles an hour is one of the hardest things to do in sports. It's even harder if you're confused and angry and depressed. On the next pitch... Breaking ball hit pass first, a base hit for Green, as Terrace will score easily. Green hits a double down the right field line, driving in a run. Next time up, even better. Next pitch, and Green sends a fly ball to right. Ochoa has to go back on the ball, still going back. And this ball is out of here. A home run for Sean Green. It's his first home run in a month. And the time after that? Green swings, drives it high and deep to right center field. This one is back, and he's hit his second home run in the ball game. He hits another homer in the fifth inning. And then in the ninth? There's a drive to right center field. He's done it. Four home runs for Sean Green. The Milwaukee fans are on their feet, giving him a standing ovation as he circles third. What a day. Green ends the day with six hits, four of them homers. It's the only time that's ever been done. He homers three more times in the next two days. And as he circles the bases after each home run, his face is completely blank. Life comes at you fast. And baseball's in the major leagues even faster. The speed of the pitch taught me an incredibly valuable lesson, that to achieve the seemingly unachievable, you have to go slow to go fast. Ten years later, Green gives a TED Talk where he explains how he rescued his career. It wasn't by working harder or thinking more or drawing on his inner rage. It was by settling his mind, using techniques he learned from a master of a martial art called Qigong. Qigong is an ancient Chinese martial arts form of meditation that integrates physical postures, breathing techniques, and focused intentions. Within the first month, I started to notice some of the positive effects, a calmer mind, increased clarity, and a physical sense of peace. For author Ryan Holiday, Green's story is not about the value of Qigong or meditation or of the Stoic philosophy he's helped popularize in his books. It's an object lesson in self-mastery, discipline, and focus drawing on a simple principle we can all apply in our own lives. It boils down to one short phrase. Stillness is the key. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm, for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. 
I founded the Next Big Idea Club, along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, finding stillness in an unstill world. Ryan Holiday originally found success in the world of marketing, where the pace is anything but still. He built a reputation as someone who was always ahead of the crowd. In 2014, he published the bestseller, The Obstacle is the Way, about modern stoicism, a contemporary take on an ancient philosophy that says that you can turn trials into triumphs by controlling how you respond to them. He followed that with The Ego is the Enemy, yet another bestseller that argues that we have to conquer our belief in our own specialness if we want to do world-changing work. He's also the author of 365 daily devotionals on his blog, The Daily Stoic. In Stillness is the Key, Holiday riffs on a quality shared by leaders, artists, thinkers, athletes, and visionaries throughout history. The ability to settle the mind. Ryan Holiday, it's great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. So, Ryan, stillness is the key to the key to what? Yeah, not to be glib about it, but I'd sort of say to everything. I don't think there's really any situation, any profession, any personal experience that isn't improved or experienced better through a kind of a stillness, of a slowing down, of being present, of locking in. We love this story of Sean Green, right? May 23rd, 2002, up at bat, tens of thousands of people screaming, a baseball hurled at him at 90 miles per hour. And somehow after this horrible slump, he produces one of the best three-day stretches in baseball history. So what is it that you like about this story? I tell that story because, you know, I'm fascinated with baseball. Hitting a baseball is probably the single hardest act in sports. You have like 400 milliseconds to identify and start the swing at a pitch. Yogi Berra's line that you can't think and hit at the same time, what he means is like, you can't be thinking about your slump or your batting average. You have to be 100% locked in on that task in front of you. And so what Green was able to do is, as a practitioner of Buddhism, he actually wrote a book called the way of baseball, and then the subtitles like finding uh, stillness at 90 miles an hour. What he manages to do is sort of create a routine, create a practice, a ritual. I mean, he's literally up at the plate saying to himself, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. He's clearing the mind. And, you know, in the span of like a single at bat, he goes from a slump to a streak. And how clearly wiping the mind clean is necessary both when you're down and when you're up, right? So I think it's like his fourth at bat or fifth at bat in that game. He's having to do the same thing, right? He's having to go like, I can't think about how many home runs I've hit. I can't think about the fact that I already hit a grand slam. I can't think about the fact that this streak is finally over. I have to wipe it all clean, to chop wood and carry water, and I have to zoom back in on this task in front of me, and I I have to be right here. I can't be anywhere else. And, you know, he managed to do it and and have one of the, the great performances of all time. 
I have to think that one of the reasons that there's a an interest in Stoicism and Buddhism and mindfulness right now is that arguably the world has never been less still, right? I mean, the world sure. is moving faster and faster and faster, but we may be hitting a, like a crescendo of unstillness, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's remarkable to me in the opening pages of the book, you describe how Seneca is sitting there in his apartment there's a gymnasium under him where weightlifters are dropping weights. I think he says, the noise of ancient Rome is enough to make me hate my powers of hearing. Yes. Right? So, I mean, so clearly this isn't entirely a new problem. No. I mean, what I love about passages like that, and Seneca's letters are full of them, is you get this glimpse that sort of for all the change— everything is still basically exactly the same. Like, you could take that scene. First off, it's probably not that indistinguishable from Rome today. But, you know, it's also New York City and Los Angeles and every major metropolis. It's vendors and shouting and neighbors and construction. And I think, unfortunately, what we've added to that are email alerts and social media pings and jackhammers and airplanes and car horns and all these additional noises on top of it. But the fundamental problem remains the same. What's interesting is not only is Seneca being distracted by the noise of the outside world, but at the same time, you know, his career is falling apart. He's sort of trying to figure out where he fits in this world. And, you know, he'd always been this sort of hyper ambitious person. He's sort of performing for history. There's just a lot of forces stirring up in this person. And somehow he manages to quiet all of that and produce, and this is the meta level of it, produce a letter that 2,000 years later holds up perfectly. And I'm just in awe of that. So stillness is the key. No subtitle, concise, simple, maybe an exercise in stillness itself. If there were one, if you were to do a counterintuitive subtitle, I might throw out the Blaise Pascal quote, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room alone. I think what's so fascinating about that quote is, you know, he says it sometime in the mid-1500s, the idea that even 500 years ago we had trouble just sort of sitting and being, whether it was writing or thinking or, you know, writing a letter or reading a book or, you know, whatever it, we're supposed to be doing, it's just hard. And then you have this device in your pocket that means you don't have to do that. It shouldn't surprise us that we don't have a lot of that time anymore. They actually did a study, I think, where like, they gave people two options. You could sit quietly in a room alone for 15 minutes, or you could give yourself a painful electrical shock and leave. And the majority of people take the, the painful electric shock. So this inability to sit quietly with our thoughts, I think, is a perennial human problem, but certainly one that's been exacerbated by technology and just like the frenetic pace of the modern world. Yeah, the internal factors are fascinating to me. This question of, like, to what extent is our lack of stillness hardwired? And I've always been struck by when you watch, like, nature documentaries, right? The predatory animals are relatively calm, you know, up until the, the strike. But the prey is skittish, right? And, and I think that we tend to think of ourselves as sort of top of the food chain you know, the, the predators rather than prey. But when you look at our evolutionary history, in our ancestral environment, we were often prey. It strikes me that we have some of the skittishness of prey. Well, I think we're a little bit of both, right? What, what I find fascinating about humans, and I think this ties to your point, and certainly it ties to Pascal's point, evolutionarily, we can see why 
the restlessness and the insatiability and the curiosity serve the species well. I have a line from the author Stefan Zweig, one of my favorite novelists of the mid-20th century. You know, he says, history reveals no instances of a conqueror being surfeited by conquests, meaning like no conqueror ever gets what they wanted and then is done. And he's talking about Magellan. He wrote a fascinating biography of Magellan. We can see why Magellan's desire to explore, he takes this massive risk. Magellan has no idea where he's going when he leaves. He, he pretends to have like a secret plan and he has no secret plan and he's just drifting and it's a massive gamble. Now, from a species-wide level, like you zoom out, you go, this is wonderful. He's done an incredible amount for human beings with his circumnavigation of the globe. But it doesn't work out for Magellan. I mean, Magellan dies, like, before he makes it all the way around. And so I think, you know, you look at someone like Elon Musk, who seems to be sort of utterly insatiable. If you wanted to be a little bit more politically inclined, you could look at someone like Donald Trump. You're like, what makes these people do what they do? It works generally well for their relatives and their ancestors or, you know, in some cases for the general common good. But it doesn't seem like it's the source of much happiness or contentment for them. And in fact, what sort of defines them is the inability to be still, the inability to enjoy what they have, even as incredible as the the scope of their accomplishments has been. You also write about Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci was driven by a desire to replace his father, who never fully embraced him. Yes. And this hunger created some of the greatest art in the history of man. And so on the one hand, you can say we hope for Leonardo da Vinci with success and wisdom and and reflection comes greater calm and stillness. But we wouldn't necessarily wish away the unstillness, the complexity that drove that in the beginning. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, what I think is fascinating about da Vinci is that, so yes, on the one hand, it fuels this great art, but it's also the reason that like half of his art is not finished because he couldn't stay in one place long enough. He would pick these sort of battles and squabbles with people. And it's why ultimately he dies like very far from Italy because he kept packing up and moving every few years. He would get this itch. And instead of like, you know, going to therapy like a modern person, he was like, you know, I just, I need a new patron. I think it was Epictetus who told his students that the chief task in life is to identify and separate what is in our control from what is outside our control which reminds me of the great serenity prayer, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. You know, oh, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What's so beautiful about that prayer is that it is very much rooted in and inspired by Stoicism. And I think it captures, you know, what the Stoics would define as sort of the four main virtues, right? Wisdom, justice, that's doing the right thing, moderation, that's sort of balance, and then the courage to sort of face a world that is so largely outside of your control. And so what the Stoics believe is that although the vast majority of what happens is outside of our control, what we always retain, what remains in our control, is the ability to respond to those circumstances. And so that's kind of the core precept of the philosophy, which is like, you know, events you don't control, but how you respond to events, that's you. And so this distinction between what's up to you And what's not up to you is obviously that's a a thing you want to run through on a regular basis. But on on the sort of meta level, what you realize is that basically nothing is up to you but your own thoughts, opinions, and actions. 
There's little doubt in my mind that there's a kind of equipoise implicit in Stoicism and Buddhism and mindfulness that delivers a peace of mind, which we all need, and great strategic advantage in navigating life. Yes. But I do wonder, when you look up, uh, I mean, I've always thought of the word stoic as having a a little bit of a pejorative connotation. Like, Mm -hmm. Merriam-Webster says that stoics aspire to be free from passion, unmoved by joy and grief. And that causes me to think, but isn't the reason we're here precisely to be moved, right? I mean, to experience joy and grief. And, I mean, as sentient beings, isn't it our job to smell, taste, relish our senses? There's basically been no phrase done more of an injustice in the English language than the phrase stoic philosophy. When we think stoic, we think lowercase stoic, emotionlessness is suppression of emotion. And then when we think philosophy, we think sort of abstract, theoretical, sort of impractical nonsense, basically. And stoicism, on the other hand, is, I think, uh, the uppercase stoicism, as we call it, is a far more robust, human, resilient, sort of... uh, you know, robust way of living that I don't think is about emotionlessness in really any way. I think it's about a freedom from destructive passions, right? It's Mm -hmm. about sort of trying to even out those things we're all trying to even out, right? We're all trying to, nobody's like glad that they lost their temper. You know, we look back at periods where we were racked with grief and from a distance we go, you know, I wish I'd known then that it was going to be okay, right? I wish I hadn't taken that so hard. And then in moments where we look back where we were celebrating or assuming we'd made it or, you know, we were good, those are the moments we look back and shake our head at and think, like, how naive we are. So I think what Stoicism as a philosophy is about is not about suppressing emotions, but it's about not being whipsawed by the ups and downs of life. It's about sort of creating a framework, a set of principles and exercises that allow one to thrive and not be so much at the mercy of these forces, interior and exterior. When we've slowed down the whipsaw, Ryan Holiday says, when we've come to terms with what we can change and what we can't, we don't just find inner peace. We find the focus we need to really get things done. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields. Tune into my podcast for conversations about the sweet spot between work, meaning, and joy. And also listen to other people's questions about how to get the most out of that thing we call work. Check out Spark wherever you enjoy podcasts. At the Next Big Idea Club, we're dedicated to spreading life-changing maybe even world-changing ideas, like those found in Ryan Holiday's Stillness is the Key. If you'd like to help support this mission and get a free copy of Ryan's book in the process, join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use promo code STILL. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code S-T-I-L-L. It's just before lunchtime on the 16th of October, 1962. John Kennedy is in the cabinet office of the White House for an emergency meeting with military and intelligence advisors. There's a medium-range ballistic missile launch site and two new military encampments on the southern edge of the Sierra de Rosario in west-central Cuba. Who would that be? Uh, West-central, sir. 
A CIA imagery analyst tells Kennedy that Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, has installed nuclear missiles in Cuba, 90 miles from the Florida coast. The missiles are capable of destroying most of the United States and killing millions of people. If they're launched and the U.S. retaliates, it could set off a global nuclear war. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara lays out the options. I'd like to outline very briefly some possible military alternatives and ask General Taylor to expand the conflict. McNamara is understandably nervous. The fate of much of the world is at stake. Military men like solid information, and there's a lot he doesn't know. If there are nuclear warheads associated with the launchers, you must assume there will be nuclear warheads associated with aircraft. Even if there are not nuclear warheads associated with aircraft, you must assume that those aircraft have high explosive potential. We have a serious air defense problem. Over the next few days, a stream of experts offer the president advice. Together, they game out the scenarios. On October 19th, in a special meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Air Force General Curtis LeMay recommends an airstrike. Kennedy resists the advice to attack. Instead, he takes long walks in the White House Rose Garden, trying to puzzle out the Soviets' motivations. They know we have more nuclear weapons. They know we have missiles in Turkey, within striking distance of Moscow. Why would they want to provoke us? After hours of quiet contemplation, he concludes that the Russians think he's weak. It's not that they want to provoke a response, it's that they think he won't respond. But proving them wrong is no reason to start a nuclear war. Our policy has been one of patience and restraint, as befits a peaceful and powerful nation, which leads a worldwide alliance. Kennedy orders warships to the area and goes on national TV. He announces a military quarantine on Cuba. No weapons go in and no weapons come out. He calls for emergency meetings of the U.N. Security Council and the Organization of American States. And he addresses Khrushchev directly. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. After six days of tense exchanges between the two leaders and high-level diplomatic meetings, Khrushchev finally orders the missiles removed. The Cuban Missile Crisis comes to an end. Ryan Holiday says the key to averting nuclear war was that Kennedy slowed things down. I think about Kennedy and the missile crisis. There is an unreasonableness to his insistence of sort of, no, let's walk through this. Let's not do the easy military option. Let's figure this out. There's got to be a way out of this. I'm not giving up so easily. Why did the Russians do this? What do they want? How can we work this out? You know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to work this out. We expect the, the president to be decisive, to act immediately, to respond to clear and present dangers. Kennedy had this expression. He's like, let us use time as a tool, not as a couch. The insight and the empathy it took to go, hey, I actually think the Russians massively overextended themselves here and that we can give them a moment to come to their senses. But if we act, if we just rush in, if we do, this is why the Stoics believed passions were so dangerous. Mm -hmm. If we react emotionally to this, there's not going to be any of us around to regret that decision. And so I think what you see in the missile crisis is what great leaders do, which is that they slow things down. 
no matter the stakes, no matter the intensity, no matter how complicated, they slow it down and they work it out. And that calm becomes contagious. I connect it with a Marcus Aurelius quote, which I love. You know, he says, the rock stands still and the, the raging of the sea calms around it. And, and I think that I sort of see, when you look at pictures of Kennedy there in the Oval Office, I kind of just see every this giant wave has crashed into him, but it calms around him because he's got the, the stillness and the confidence and the clarity of vision that that position requires. And, you know, millions of people owe, we owe our lives to that 13 days. It struck me building digital media companies over the years that I needed what I like to call Venetian blinders. So you think of like the blinders on a horse that's staying focused on their forward motion. Whatever we're doing, we need to have some awareness of what's happening to our left and to our right, of what's happening in the world. But it's very easy to have way too much information coming in, right? So the ability to kind of adjust these Venetian blinders to stay, have an optimal amount of incoming information from the outside world strikes me as a a very tricky balance. I love the story of Bill Gates taking two one-week reading retreats every year. And I understand he's done this for many years. Is that right? Yeah, look, and it's easier to retreat in a cabin in the woods and just, you know, read about things when you're a billionaire and you have, you know, very few direct reports. But I've been lucky enough through some of my works to meet, you know, sort of different billionaires or very high-ranking government officials or CEOs. You realize, like, they don't do anything during the day. That's not what that role is. For the most part, a CEO is, like, just making a handful of hard decisions each day and charting the long-distance course of the company. I think even for creatives, it's like if you're just always, like let's say you're a comedian, you're just out there performing all the time, you're not going to be engaging in the normal experiences of life that that fuel the material. Just yesterday, I was working on something and then I had to go somewhere, so I had to go take a shower. And I solved the problem that I'd been wrestling with all morning in the shower. And I got to run back to my computer and jot down those notes and, and come back to it later. So if you're always doing, always doing, 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 you feel like you're making progress and perhaps you are making incremental progress, but often the sort of big breakthroughs, the sort of jagged leaps forward come from taking your foot off the gas a little bit. You make a compelling case that stillness leads to happiness or increases our happiness. Is that part of the competitive advantage? I don't know if it's a competitive advantage or it's just its own advantage. When I think about the best moments of my life, I wasn't like, I'm so busy, this is wonderful. You know, it was sitting on a porch swing or it was driving in the car with someone or it was taking a walk or it was just hanging out. The moments where we feel happiness, we are almost always still in some way. So I think a life requires both accomplishments and sort of those moments of peaceful stillness as well. A friend of mine did this study a few years ago, and he looked at hundreds and hundreds and millions of social media posts and blog posts and things. And he found that young people tend to, when they say things like, I'm happy because, or, you know, I feel so good because, what comes after that almost invariably was some form of accomplishment, right? I got a promotion and I feel great. Or, you know, like, I I feel so happy I have $1,000. And then on the other hand, as people age, it tends to shift towards contentment. So it's like, I feel happy I'm with my grandchildren. I I feel happy I'm in my favorite park, things like that. And so that struck me as being true in my experience. And so I think those moments of contentment usually come from a place of stillness. 
How about toxic thinking, Ryan? You write about how toxic thinking gets in the way of stillness. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, myself included, who sort of pick up thought patterns from childhood that, you know, it doesn't matter if you are in a beautiful cabin in the woods. You're not going to be thinking how beautiful this is. You're going to think about, I can't believe I'm playing hooky from work. You know, I'm an imposter. I'm going to fall behind. Or you're thinking, uh, I got to post pictures of this on Instagram so people know how smart and creative I am for doing this. We, we can sort of get caught in these patterns, usually that we pick up quite early. You know, psychologists call this the sort of inner child. And I think a lot of us have, even though we are adults, even though we have businesses or cars or positions of influence, we are sometimes not who we seem to the outside world because actually we're seven and a half or we're, you know, the 11-year-old whose parents sat them down and said they were getting a divorce or, you know, whatever it is. We just got, we've got this sort of inner child run amok. You know, I have a quote from Fred Rogers. He's like, the child is in me still mm. and sometimes not so still. And I think that's a, a wonderful way to put it because I think a lot of the reason we don't have stillness is because of that. So let's talk about how stillness makes us more effective. I read recently that the mindfulness business is now generating a billion dollars in revenue, largely from all these apps, which I enjoy. There are a thousand mindfulness apps. I only use one. Sure. Clearly, there are a lot of people for whom this is delivering a competitive advantage, or certainly at minimum, the perception of a competitive advantage. Sure. Why is that? And why now? I think this goes to what you're saying earlier, which is that we feel busier and more overwhelmed than ever before. But I think people used to have ritual and routine built into their life. And for thousands of years, that was what we did, right? People had sacrifices or they they saw priests or they went to church or, you know, they prayed before bed. And so there used to be kind of a process through which we slowed down, which we had some quiet time with ourselves, which we were reflective, which we saw a big picture, where we were connected to something much bigger than ourselves. And obviously, the breakthroughs of science and liberal humanism, these have been massive, you know, sort of breakthroughs and value adds for society. But they have had the unintended consequence of sort of knocking down some of those old things. And I think what we're turning back towards is some of the slightly more secular, but nevertheless ancient and, and tried and tested strategies for inner peace and tranquility. And, and so... I think people are realizing like, oh, it's very hard to be good at what I'm doing and be doing 10 other things at the same time, right? It's very hard for me to focus on this multi-year project I'm working on as I'm getting emails every minute from other people asking me how it's going or, or you know, I'm seeing news alerts about what other people are doing. And so I think we're realizing, oh, we need some framework for how we navigate this. And it happens that this was already discovered quite some time ago. So Ryan Holiday argues that to make effective decisions, you need to be as still as a rock in the middle of a raging river. You need to conquer your impulses and be guided by your values. You need to get to know yourself. Now, all that sounds pretty mystical. How do you actually do it? From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
Ryan Holiday has told us why we need stillness in our lives. But how do we get there? In Stillness is the Key, he argues that there's no one way. He gives us loads of examples of people taking different approaches based on their personal or historical circumstances. He offers no clever acronyms or nifty tricks, just a few basic principles that you can apply to your life as you see fit. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of what we can do, practically speaking, to bring more stillness into our lives. Yeah, I mean, I could probably just kind of walk you through my morning. So this morning I, I woke up about, I think, 6 tw- 6.20. I got a five-month-old. So he woke up, and so, you know, we sort of spent time playing on the floor while everyone else slept. And then my other son woke up, and so I took them for a walk. We went on a long walk on a dirt road near our house, and we were just sort of outside. We watched the sun come up. I didn't bring my phone. I, I don't use my phone in the mornings. My thing is I don't use it for at least an hour after I'm awake, but often it's as much as two or three hours. And then I, I came home, and the first thing I did is I, I went I went into my study, and I sat down with some journals, and I just sort of wrote. There's no outcome expected. It's just some sort of quiet time with your own thoughts. But putting them on paper is, I think, important because you you have to concretize them. You have some physical distance from them. And when you think of what Stoicism is, the vast majority of it is letter writing and journaling. And so what survives to us is not so much the uh, anthologies or the multi-volume sets on this topic or another. It's the private thoughts of these interesting people who are wrestling with the same ideas that you and I are talking about. So after the journaling was done, that's when I went straight into the the writing that I had to do for the day. And so by like noon, I was more or less done with what I really had to do for the day. And then the rest of the day, I, you know, I try to get up early. I try to win the morning. I try to slow things down, try to make sure that I'm not reacting and that I'm not starting the day on my back foot and that I, I'm doing the important sort of creative deep work stuff as early as possible. And and I find that to be a recipe for both creative success and, and I think sort of personal happiness. And then, you know, it frees me up this, this afternoon. I went for a run. I had an idea. I came back and worked on that a little bit. You know, it, there's other, it, that's not the only work you're doing, but I, I try to front load it as much as possible. You talk about changing our behavior to create the space for stilling our minds. What do you think for most people is the hardest change to make? I'd say for me, a big one is saying no. I got these two speaking requests in my inbox I was just looking at before I came here. And they're, you know, they're cool opportunities. It seems like it'd be cool, but it's not paid. And I don't really want to do it. And I got a busy month. And I don't want to be, I, you know, this person's a friend of a friend. And I don't want to say no. I think we're bad at judging opportunity costs. We say maybe or I guess when really we deep down we, we want to say no, but we don't want to be a bad guy. So I think the big behavior is just, you know, one of my favorite questions from Marcus really is he says, everything you're considering, ask yourself, is this necessary? And if you can eliminate the things that are not necessary, you'll have more tranquility and you'll do more better. And that's something I, I'm constantly struggling with. And I, I having written about it, I hear from lots of people. We're just doing more than we should be or more than we need to be. And this is a kind of a hidden cost on all of our work as well as all of our happiness because we're just so massively overextended. And then this is what creates burnout and it creates resentment and it creates suboptimal performance. You say in the book that connection is necessary in our lives. And connection typically involves other people. And other people are a big part of distraction. 
how do we include other people in our journey towards stillness? Yeah, sure, sure. Relationships, they have a cost. But what the Stoics would say is, so, you know, you don't take the work with you when you die, right? You don't take the money with you when you die. The work doesn't hug you at night. It doesn't reassure you when you're when you're scared. You know, it doesn't run down the hall shouting, Daddy. I think a life where one dedicates themselves exclusively to accomplishment is ultimately pretty empty. You say in the book, you journal to wage peace with yourself, which I thought was a really nice turn of phrase. Is the instruction or the desire to reflect on the day or the recent past and reflect on how you could do it better or what you aspire to? What, what's the sort of formula? A little bit of all those things. I use a couple different journals. as a bullet journal where I just sort of riff. I use this journal called One Line a Day, and you just write one sentence per day. I usually just write one sentence about the day just passed. I like even journals that have prompts or uh, guided questions. I, I think that can be pretty helpful as well. And how about meditation and breathing rituals? Is that a regular part of your day or something you recommend? I, w- I wish I could say that it was a more regular part of my day. It's just tends to not be how I operate. I tend to find walking to be more meditative, exercise to be more meditative. I do try to take some time where I just sort of sit and and do nothing, but meditation hasn't really done it for me. So one of the sort of premises of the book is that there is not some magical thing. If, If you just do this one thing, you'll have stillness. I think it's it's more complicated than that. And so I think it's something you attack from a variety of angles. Does your decision to embrace the Stoic philosophy and write this wonderful succession of books, is this partly a process of reconciling with or complicating your own ambition and hunger and unstillness? I think so. I mean, I heard a quote from Lyndon Johnson once where he was saying he's like sort of he had this animal instinct, but he kept it on a leash. I think there's a part of that in me, like, I can see and I've experienced periods where where you just sort of give yourself over to that. And it has some short-term career advantages, but it's just not, it's not the right way to live, in my opinion. I think where I've tried to get, where I think I've gotten closer to as I've gotten older and as I've written these books and sort of done this study and, and followed these practices is I'm trying to get to a place where I am still doing, but I'm doing it out of a place of fullness not out of a place of craving. I wrote it because I believed in it and it was meaningful and I wanted the experience of it to be enjoyable but also challenging. Of course, I wanted it to do well, but I wanted to do it from a place where I didn't need it to do well, where none of my identity was tied up in it doing well. I wanted my ambition to be directed at the parts of it I controlled, which is the the writing and the title and the cover and the, the work that I put into it where it ultimately lands on the bestseller list or how many copies it sells or how quickly it earns out, there's an ambitious part of me that in the past would have sort of maybe looked more to those things. I would have sort of withheld judgment until those numbers came in. And I think what the Stokes would say is that that is kind of a recipe for insanity or it's setting oneself up to be disappointed because you're handing over your happiness or your ambition to other people are random good luck or bad luck. But are there times to release the wild animal? I love this Nietzsche quote, those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. 
Sure. And it feels like the Stoics were highly intent on not hearing the music. (laughs) There's a Cicero quote I I love about dancing. He says, no one uh, dances who is sober unless they're a lunatic. But I I don't know. Maybe there's some benefit of craving that would work if you're you suddenly found yourself bankrupt and you're coming back from nothing or if you know the fate of the world rested on your shoulders if you you couldn't accomplish some massive feat of endurance i, I don't know but i guess I, I don't know when i look at the great moments of history the ones that put chills down my spine that inspire me whether it's the missile crisis or it's sean green i think what tends to unite them together is that they weren't coming from a place of craving or craziness. They were coming from a place of sort of, not even a place of restraint. They were just coming from a place of, just from a, a better place. And I think my books are about trying to get there, and I'm trying to get there in my own life. Well, Ryan Holiday, thank you so much for coming on the Next Big Idea podcast. That was super interesting and I think really helpful for our listeners. Oh, well, that's great to hear. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we go, I want to let you know that today's podcast is the last episode in our first season. 16 episodes, I can't believe it. We've learned a lot, and frankly, it's been a blast. If you've made it this far, maybe that means you feel the way we do, and we thank you from the bottoms of our hearts. We hope you'll plan to come back for season two. If you missed any earlier episodes, or if you want to join the club or subscribe to the podcast, head over to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you sign up now, we'll send you a free copy of Ryan Holiday's book. Just use the promo code STILL, S-T-I-L-L. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Ryan Holiday. His book, Stillness is the Key, is available wherever books are sold and at thenextbigideaclub.com. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Alex Kratoski. Sound design is by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.